Hello and welcome to the Tally Ho podcast, all about the prisoner, with me, Eason. And me, Bex. And in today's episode, we were very, very lucky to have the chance to speak to legendary filmmaker, director, writer Alex Cox about his new book, All About the Prisoner. Yeah, so Alex is probably best known as being the director of films like Sid and Nancy and Repo Man. We're really grateful for him taking the time out to have a chat with us. We had a a transatlantic phone call with him a few days ago. It was actually the day before the 50th anniversary itself. Um, All about his new book called I Am Not a Number Decoding the Prisoner. So we had a chat about his thoughts on the series and why it remains so culturally relevant today and also a bit about his book too. Yeah, but that's enough about what's about to happen. You might as well just listen to it. (laughs) We're delighted to be joined now by director, writer and author of a new book all about the prisoner, Alex Cox. Hello, Alex. Hello. Hey, thanks you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. When did you first become a fan of The Prisoner? 50 years ago, today or tomorrow. Wow. <laughs> the 50th anniversary of the first broadcast date. And what are your recollections of actually watching it, like when it was on for the first time? It must have seemed, I mean, just as it is now, unlike anything that's ever been on TV at the time. It was unlike anything that I'd ever seen on television. Um, it, I mean, I hadn't been the least bit interested in Danger Man. Um, but for some reason, I watched the first episode of The Prisoner, and I was completely entranced by it. I thought it was extraordinary, and I kept watching, and I saw every episode when it was broadcast, um, and I only discovered years later that actually it, was a, it had been made in color, because we didn't have color telly 50 years <laughs> ago. And so then I saw, when I saw it again, I saw it in color, and that was another revelation. How long was it between first seeing it when, when it was initially broadcast in black and white and then being able to see a repeat? I don't know. You got me there because you'd need to actually you'd need to look in the broadcasting records. I don't know when the series was first repeated, and I don't remember anymore when colour television came in, but I think it was a few years after the first broadcast. And what was it like, what was the impact of it when it was first shown on TV? Was it something that a lot of people were, were talking about? Well, I don't know, you know, I was just a little boy. I mean, we talked about it at school, we thought it was great, but it wasn't really the kind of thing that you could play in the playground, you know, it was a bit, <laughs> bit, too, bit too complex for that, you know. You couldn't really give your, your fellow students lobotomies in the playground, so it was, uh, <laughs> it was more of a thing just to appreciate, and I think that was also the thing, was it was a thing to appreciate on an individual level, even though I know in later years uh, very enthusiastic groups like uh, the people that will be meeting in Port Merion this weekend and, and the Six of One group, I mean a lot of groups that were really totally behind the prisoner as a group, which is interesting because really it was all about the individual and the individual's struggle with a larger oppressive world. What was your reaction to the finale the very first time that you saw it? I loved it. I felt very sad. It made me feel really sad that it was over. Um, I felt that it had kind of concluded everything, but but revealed very little. 
Although it was interesting to learn that number two was a member of parliament or a member of the House of Lords and then <laughs> returned to his, his day job, that was quite fascinating. What do you think the impact of the show has been over the last 50 years? It's often referred to as a, a cult show, but in, in terms of the impact it's had on, on television and on the culture, um, it, it seems to have influenced a lot of people who've sort of gone on to work in film and television. Not sufficiently. <laughs> or there'd be much better things on television than the cinema <laughs> instead of the pablum that, that we get served up. I mean, it was quite extraordinary and quite unlike anything else. And I think one of the great things about it and one of the things that film and television are too afraid or too corporately controlled to address is the idea that politics is a game played for the benefit of the of the oligarchy um, that it doesn't really matter which side you're on in the sense that as opposed to say danger man or the man from uncle or any contemporary jason bourne spy drama james bond spy drama the prisoner suggests that both sides are actually identical and that there really isn't any difference between the way those evil Russians behave and the way that our government and spy agencies behave. And Leo McKern makes that very clear in, in the episode uh, Chimes of Big Ben when he says, you know, it doesn't really matter who runs the village because basically uh, we're pretty much all the same in terms of the controllers of the village. Do you think that's why it's often been considered almost a, a dangerous show? Um, we know that over the years it's been banned from being shown in some places. There was an episode that was even banned in the, in the US on the first showing. Well, what they, I think in the US they were just freaked out by the, um, the cowboy episode, mm. <laughs> Living in Harmony. I think yeah. that was just a bit too strange for them. Not just because it was English guys doing a cowboy episode that came out of nowhere in the series or seemed to come out of nowhere but also because the aesthetic of the episode was so much that of the Italian western mm. that the director had clearly taken everybody on the cast and crew to see for a few dollars more <laughs> the week before they shot it and that in itself was destabilizing and upsetting to to the American gatekeepers and also, interestingly, to the French gatekeepers, because the French wouldn't broadcast that episode either. So you've got this new book coming out in December, I Am Not a Number Decoding the Prisoner. What inspired you to start researching this? I had been given, a number of years ago, a boxed Blu-ray set of The Prisoner, and I didn't have a Blu-ray player, and so this thing just sat on the shelf for years. And I finally thought, you know, I should watch these. So I went, I went to the pawn shop, P-A-W-N shop, and bought an old Blu-ray player with RCA jacks so I could stick it in the back of our old telly. And for the first time, I watched the whole show in color because I'd never seen all the episodes in color before, and I watched them in the sequence that they were presented in the video box. Basically, the original UK broadcast sequence with a few changes. And then I thought, well, having read a bit about The Prisoner and how it came to be made and, and how McGowan worked with his collaborators on it, I thought really the way to try and understand the series would be to watch the episodes in the order in which they were made, 
because they didn't know when they started making Arrival in Port Merion. They didn't know how the series was going to end. They didn't even know how many episodes there would be. Apparently, Lou Grade had committed to making a total of 17, but that was an odd number. The first series was 13 episodes, and there was every expectation that there'd be a second series of another 13 episodes. So the series developed during the course of time, over 18 months, and it was only when when the rug got pulled out under it at a certain point and the word came, no, this series is going to finish at episode 17 and not go past it, that then the episodes had to come to a, a conclusion. So that was my, what I brought to the table really was just watching the episodes in the order in which, as far as we can tell, the order in which they were made and trying to learn what McGowan and his collaborators learned as they went along. So, without giving too much away, um, what kinds of things do you uh, touch upon in relation to that in the new book? Well, I try and I mean I try and answer all the questions. Who runs the village? Which I think is pretty clear from the final episode. In any case, but I try and answer who runs the village. I try and answer who or what number one is, and what number six's job was, or he was kidnapped because he's often he's thought of as being John Drake, Danger Man, you know. Yeah. But there's no evidence for that in the show. He certainly doesn't display any unique spy abilities. But he is a very intelligent man. He's an organizer of other people, um, as are a number of prisoners, very intelligent people and scientists. And the ones who claim to be spies invariably turn out to be agent provocateur placed in the village by number two in order to destabilize number six. So I try and figure out all the answers to all those questions, but they're only the answers that I've come up with. And uh, obviously, if we were to look at all the episodes and think about them and ponder them over time, you might come up with entirely different conclusions. Yes, yeah, so it's a it's a show which has lent itself to many different interpretations. Do you think that viewing the episodes in production order? Do you think that um, you know seeing how they were broadcast? Do you think there is actually a you know a definitive order of this um, of the prisoner episodes, or or can you just view it? You know, obviously keeping the first and last ones where they were. You know, is it? Is it completely open to interpretation based on how you know based on the order in which um, uh, you look at the episodes? Oh, I think that's right, isn't it? That your that your take on the series, <clears throat> you know, if you just like <clears throat> shook them up and threw them out like dice and watched them in a different order, you might very well reach somewhat different conclusion or, or form alternate uh, notes. When they broadcast the show originally, Chimes of Big Ben was made the second episode, even though it wasn't the second episode in the shooting sequence, because there's a character in there called Fotheringay, yeah. who originally was John Drake's um, go-to officer when he was a secret agent man. So the broadcast is trying to set things up for the idea that, that number six is John Drake, but that wasn't McGowan's intention. That's a function of reordering the episodes. And if you watch the 
episodes in the order in which they appear to have been filmed. Across immediately and very interestingly is the village's interest in cloning people, making people who are exact duplicates of other people through surgery or whatever other means. The first three episodes all feature a subsidiary character or a pair of subsidiary characters played by the same actor who is a, either a clone or a surgically constructed twin of the other character. Now, they're doing that for some reason, I think. They're not just throwing that in to be wacky. It plays out later in the season uh, in the episode uh, Schizoid Man where an exact replica of number six appears calling himself number six and the village authorities attempt to persuade the prisoner that he is now number 12. And then the idea of cloning and producing exact duplicates of individuals recurs, of course, at the very end in Fallout. Mm-hmm. So that's another interest if you start to look at the things in the... So they were figuring that out as they went along. They're thinking, let's have another clone. They're, they're doing that for a reason rather than just doing it to be because it's fun. <laughs> Nothing happens in a prisoner without a reason, I don't think. Do you have any particular favourite episodes from the series? I love Schizoid Man, um, and I love uh, Many Happy Returns, and Times of Big Ben is beautifully constructed, of course. And I also like that transgressive episode, the one that McGowan wasn't in because he was too busy. (laughs) The one where he was filming uh, Ice Station Zebra. Yeah, he went to L.A. to shoot Ice Station Zebra (laughs) and just... Abandoned the show, you know, <laughs> and um, and they brought in this actor Nigel Stock to play the prisoner, and John Stock was a really kind of mainstream meat and potatoes actor. You know, he played Doctor Watson to Peter Cushing's Sherlock Holmes, and he played Winston Churchill, you know, and, ve- and many many parts in many many television shows. But the thing is, Stock was like a really really good actor. And he was presented with the challenge of playing Patrick McGowan, <laughs> playing number six. And so he did. And if you watch what Stock does in that episode, when he appears at the beginning of the show, he's called the Colonel. And he's one of the few people who jets or flies in the village who, who won't wear a badge. He and McGowan's character are the only two that never wear a badge, a number on it. He shows up, he's, he's ramrod straight, uh, and he says, just let's get to business, you know. What do you need me for? But when he becomes Magoon, or when he becomes the prisoner slash number six slash Magoon, back in London, his posture changes. Magoon was a big man. Magoon was like six four, six five, you know. So when he would talk to people, quite often he would tend to slouch. His posture was super erect because he was so big mm-hmm. and bend forward to talk to people. Stock does that. <laughs> and it's so interesting seeing how a really brilliant actor faced with the challenge of of being Magoon or being Magoon's brain in another man's body dealt with it. And of course, famously, it's the only kiss in the series. <laughs> it's the only time that uh, the number six character has a relationship or a, or a, a romantic relationship with another character. Have you engaged at all with any of the sort of 
remakes, reimaginings, reworkings, whatever you want to call them over the years, like the the uh, the 2009 series, the audiobooks, the comics, any of that? No, not at all. No, and I haven't read any of the unmade, un, unmade scripts. I didn't watch the one-off TV thing they did. No, I've just watched the 17 episodes, like, numerous times. <laughs> That's all you need. I mean, that's all there is. That's all there is, because none of the, the comic books weren't authorized by Magoon. They weren't written by him. Um, the nonsensical, you know, attempt at, at, at recreating the series wasn't authorized by him, <laughs> and he had nothing to do with it, you know. So I stick to the Magoon canon, you know, because mm. he, was, he was running that show, you know, at least, well, when he wasn't in Los Angeles acting in, in Ice Station Zebra. And do you think that so going back to the original series, were there any episodes that maybe you weren't as keen on before or maybe you didn't connect with as much that you did have a greater affinity for when you thought of them in the context of the uh, production order versus uh, the broadcast order? Well, yeah, I mean, do not forsake me, darling, even though it's, it's, it's transgressive and, and it kind of contradicts the other episodes because in that episode, Magoon's character has a fiancé waiting for him in London. Yeah. But that can't be true because if it were true, he would have gone to see her when he was in London several episodes previously in Many Happy Returns. Yeah. She doesn't exist in that episode. He also has an in with the Secret Service because she's the daughter of Sir Charles, a highly placed Mandarin in MI5 or MI6. So he wouldn't have had to suffer the, the, the foolishness that he has to deal with with Colonel Jay and Fotheringay in, in, in that earlier episode. He already has family. In the... so, so even though it's, uh, it's, it's transgressive and it, it contradicts the other episodes, part, I think, because McGowan was absent in Los Angeles when it was for most of the filming. It's still a really good episode, really entertaining. Um, and some episodes, I think, don't weather the test of time as well. I know a lot of people like A, B, and C, but I, I don't find A, B, and C very interesting. Whereas Schizoid Man I find fascinating and, and, and Fallout, of course. And also, and, and, and also that wonderful prior, the, the, the sort of the, the first half of Fallout, Once Upon a Time in which Neil McKern returns because originally, according to the prisoner history or the, the consensus of the books about it and the websites, Once Upon a Time was originally meant to end the first season. And when the controller says to, uh, when number six says, I want to go to number one, and the controller says, I'll take you. That was going to be the cliffhanger that would end the first 13-season series, and then 13 more episodes come next. But when Lou Grade said, no, we're only going to make 17 episodes, we're not going to make any more, then the whole thing got reshuffled, and McGowan, who had directed Once Upon a Time, made it a companion piece with Fallout. So even though it was, in terms of the shooting order, it was, I think, episode number four or episode number five, it probably belongs as a little companion with Fallout. But since Fallout begins with, like, four or five minutes of clips from Once Upon a Time, 
you actually could do that thing of juggle the episodes, put them in any order, and you'd still you wouldn't miss the fall, how it ties to Fallout because uh, sorry how it ties to Once Upon a Time because Fallout re- recaps that episode at its beginning. Do you have a particular favourite number two from the show? I think everybody's favourite is is um, Liam McKern, <laughs> don't you think? Yeah, it's, it's the answer we've got from everyone. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody loves Liam McKern best because he's so wonderful. He's just he's just so good. Um, but there are a number of good number sixes, aren't there? I mean, that episode where uh, number six is induced to run for office, free for all, mm. and he's given a um, a, a, a Boonwell style French maid number fifty eight played by uh, an actor called Rachel Herbert, who seems to speak no English. She talks in some kind of made-up Eastern European language that no one except the other number two can understand. But at the end of the episode, after number six thinks that he has been elected number two, it turns out once again he's been tricked, and Rachel Herbert is really number two, and has been probably all along. So I think that, that Rachel Herbert and Leo McKern are, are my favorite number twos, but there are so many good ones, aren't there? Why do you think The Prisoner, out of all the shows from the, the late 60s, um, that you know, there are a lot of very stylish ITC shows made at the time, why do you think The Prisoner, more than anything, has maintained such popularity that there are entire festivals celebrating it its 50th anniversary because of its intelligence and its philosophical content because most television and most films are really stupid and <laughs> appeal to a very low intellectual level you know you don't have to be very smart to go and watch uh, a jason bourne movie or a marvel comics movie or or an episode of deadwood or whatever you know or an episode of breaking bad um, you don't have to really put yourself intellectually out there to get what's going on because it's a pretty traditional good versus evil saga. Whereas the genius of The Prisoner is that it really did challenge you because it didn't seem like there was necessarily a good side and a bad side. As McKern's number two says in, in, in that uh, Times of Big Ben episode, you know, both sides are the same, essentially. All that's left is the individual. All that's left is the individual struggling against increasingly powerful and increasingly immoral surveillance state. And yet at the same time, the individual himself is corrupted. And it's very easy for number two to draw number six into involvement in the workings of the village, as he does in the episode where number two, where number six stands for political office. So, the, so in other words, it's, I think that's wise because not only is it intellectually challenging and interesting, um, drawing both from uh, Cold War dramas but also from from contemporary science fiction, it it remains current because it's philosophically challenging. It's intelligent. And because its hero is flawed and doesn't win.
he never wins, even when he goes back to London. What's that? But, you know, Her Majesty's Open Prison London ID must be carried at all times. So when the end credits, so you know when the end credits roll in the final episode, they introduce Angelo Muscat, they introduce Leo McKern, they introduce Alexis Canna, but when McGowan's card appears, it just says prisoner. <laughs> so in what ways do you think, um, if it has had an effect, uh, the prisoner has influenced your own body of work? I think it encouraged me to be cynical, to keep my distance from the discourse by realizing that whatever the discourse was, does Saddam Hussein have weapons of mass destruction or doesn't he? Did Vladimir Putin elect Donald Trump or didn't he? Those are nonsensical questions invented by the oligarchy who control the media in order to keep everybody running in little circles like rats in a cage. And we never get beyond the invented discourse of the media, except on very rare occasions. And a series like The Prisoner opened my mind and opened the mind of other people too, I think, by saying, wait a minute, the discourse that you get given, this bifurcated either-or discourse, good us, bad them, our warriors, their bandits, that discourse is fundamentally untrue. And you have to think beyond it. And you have to think, why are these people doing it? Why are we being created with this, this fake and imaginary version of reality? What are they trying to distract us from? And those are the questions that the prisoner asks. So uh, your new book, I Am Not, in parentheses, a Number, Decoding the Prisoner, is out in December. Although you can have a digital edition tomorrow, I think, oh. to <laughs> coincide with the anniversary of the show. Oh, perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, and so the people in Port Merion can read it on their telephone. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been researching and writing the book? Oh, I mean, I've been researching it for 50 years. <laughs> I've been thinking about it for 50 years. Ever since I saw the first episode, I've been thinking about it and puzzling over it and trying to figure out what it meant. And I started the book earlier this year. I just thought, you know, this is really interesting. Now I've seen the episodes in color and watched them again in the production order and thought, wow, I'm kind of getting an idea of what it's about. And so I contacted uh, Ian Mills, who's the publisher of um, Camera Books, who brought this out and said, would you like a book about the prisoner? And he goes, oh, it's too late, you know, it's the anniversary year. I go, really? Oh, I didn't know it's anniversary year. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. He goes, how quickly could you do it? And I said, I'm already working on it. You know, I could probably have it done by June, you know. So I worked on it and, and, and got it finished by June. And, and here it is. You know, so that's actually very fast in publishing circles because they normally take a lot longer. But because of the synchronicity of the occasion, because I didn't know when I was watching the episodes what the, that it was the anniversary year, um, the, the synchronicity of it all encouraged everybody to like make an extra effort to get it out as soon as possible. Alex, that was fantastic talking to you. Um, we're both really keen to read the book when it comes out, where we can actually 
read digital copy tomorrow, as you say. We can, <laughs> we can go and look for it. It's a nice-looking book. It's very handsome. Because we didn't go for... You know, the stills of The Prisoner are kind of funky, you know. I mean, they, were, they just had some on-set photographer taking some pictures, you know, and, and mm. a lot of the stills just look like snapshots. So I mm. went into the episodes themselves and extracted screen grabs, yeah. one for each episode. So the illustrations themselves are, are like selected from the images of the, of the show itself in order to illustrate some aspect of each episode. That sounds great. It's pretty nice. I mean, see what you think. I, but I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it was it was enlightening to hear your perspective on the on the prison, and, you know, and we were, we're really itching to get our hands on a copy of this now, so we can uh, we can have a read of it as well, because we're trying to get uh, we're trying to sort of reinvigorate interest in the prisoner in any way that we can. This is a wonderful opportunity to to kind of um, put the word out about you know new thoughts on the show and things. And, well, it's uh, really, and I mean even and even that episode, the general, which we didn't talk about, but I mean that is. So contemporary in the sense mm. of the the kind of the regimentation of education and everything being about rote learning, being able to pass tests, you know, mm. which was something in the 1960s, which people looked at a little askance, you know, I mean, at my school, which was like a pretty straight school, you know, regular state grammar school in the world, you know, but our teachers were were kind of horrified at the way it was in France because in France they had the baccalaureate and a French minister could look at his watch and say, okay, right now, everybody in the, every kid in this country age 11 is learning German. You know? <laughs> and, and, but what's happened over the last 50 years, we've gone in the same direction to this insane test-based, you know, mm. mindless repetition version, version of education, which is what the general warns about, you know. So I think it's a fascinating series. Yeah, I think its themes are, it's striking how, how prescient it was, not just in terms of sort of what it was, you know, showing, but actually, you know, the ideologies, the philosophies in it. It's remarkable how the show still holds up today, um, as you know, as much as, if not more than it did when it was originally shown. Even more, because we live in a much more surveilled environment. I mean, thanks to the internet and thanks to the telephone and stuff, I mean, one assumes that every, no communication that you have electronically, whether by phone or by, by internet, is ever secure. Um, and so, that sense, so in that sense, we are all in the position of number six in the village. Although, luckily, we don't yet have, as far as I know, have hidden surveillance car cameras in the bathroom. That'll be going a bit far. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, that was really nice. Thank you very much for talking to us. It's been really fun. It was lovely. Thank you very much. Good luck with the show. Cheers. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was our chat with Alex Cox. It was a pleasure to have the chance to speak to him and get his insights into the world of The Prisoner and also his new book. And I think it was just fascinating to, again, find out about just a different perspective on the on the show. It's one of those things where everyone watch, who watches it has, you know, quite interesting perspectives on it. And no one really has exactly the same viewpoint on things. And, I, you know, I think it's going to be really exciting to... Uh, get our hands on a copy of his new book and see exactly uh, how his argument plays out. 
Yeah, our next episode, which is coming your way tomorrow, is an interview that we did with Michael Pickwode, who is a TV and movie production designer, who actually worked on the 2009 miniseries version of The Prisoner. It's safe to say that it's a controversial miniseries among Prisoner fans, but it does look absolutely beautiful. Um, And a large part of that is down to the wonderful production design. And it was a great pleasure to have a chat with Michael all about the making of the show, how some of the production design ideas came about in terms of the look of the miniseries. And just hearing some of the stories from the shoots that they had out in Namibia and South Africa when they filmed it. Yeah, so that's our episode which is coming out tomorrow. (laughs) Sorry, we're churning these out at the moment. Um, Yeah, it was a wonderful conversation with Michael. Once again, we'd like to thank all of our listeners and followers who have um, said such nice things about the podcast series we're doing at the moment. If you want to get in touch with us, we are on Twitter at TFCAA, which stands for Time for Cakes and Ale, which is our mothership podcast. Uh, We're on Facebook. Uh, We have a page, Time for Cakes and Ale. We have a website, www.timeforcakesandale.com, and you can find out more about the podcast, um, about all the things we're doing in any of those locations. If you follow those things, you'll also be kept up to date with what we're doing and find out about all the cool things we're doing with the Prisoner series, The Tally Ho, but also our other podcasts about Twin Peaks and also our general one as well. Yeah, so if you want to subscribe, you can do that on iTunes or on any of the big podcast apps like Stitcher and TuneIn and Podcast Addict. If you search for Time for Cakes and Ale, you'll get all of our podcasts, including all the Tally Ho podcasts there to select from. Yeah, but that's it for today's episode. We'll be back tomorrow. And signing off, be seeing you. you.